0: At Home with Growing Older is a nonprofit organization which believes in peer learning and creating discussions which bring the lens of aging to a variety of topics. At Home with Growing Older is proud to be your host of At Home On Air, a biweekly radio hour offering connection, community, and knowledge to our participants remotely. Now, we invite you to listen and learn from this live recorded episode of At Home On Air.
1: The wonderful thing about gardening, I find, is that you go out to do one thing, like, oh, there's a rose, i better clip the dead rose off, and then you see something else, and then you see something else, and then you thought you'd be out there for five minutes, and you're out there for 35 minutes, and it's all been wonderfully joyful. (laughs) For me, gardening isn't work, it isn't thought. I don't have to think. I I kind of know what to do.
2: My name is Jennifer Jewell. I'm the host of the public radio program and podcast, Cultivating Place, Conversations on Natural History and the Human Impulse to Garden. I couldn't be more honored uh, to be in conversation with Claire Cooper Marcus. Several years ago now, I invited Claire to be a guest on my program. And then in 2017, I was approached by Timber Press to write a book on current women in horticulture and their gifts and their contributions to the field. And it was clear to me right from the very beginning that Claire Cooper Marcus would be one of the women I invited. Claire is a professor emerita in the departments of architecture and landscape architecture at the University of California, Berkeley. She is the principal of Healing Landscapes, a consulting firm that specializes in researching the effectiveness of restorative landscapes in healthcare settings. She is in internationally recognized for her research on the social and psychological impacts of design, particularly urban open space, affordable housing, outdoor space in healthcare and environments for children and the elderly. And I will say her expertise could not be more needed in this exact moment in time when we are faced with both a greater need for healthy outdoor space and a greater need for well-being and health in our own lives. So with that, Claire, welcome. I would like to start by asking you to share, if you would, your earliest influences of people and places and plants that grew you into a person for whom this would become a really driving, organizing element to your your careers.
1: Yes, thank you. Thank you, Jennifer. Well, my Early influence goes way, way back. I was a child in the Second World War in England. We were evacuated to the country, in fact, to the estate of the Rothschilds. Think Downton Abbey, only a little bit smaller. (laughs) And it so happened our house, the house we were assigned, had no garden whatsoever. It was a row house and there were driveways. And we faced onto a cobbled courtyard. And it happened that six of the cobbles were missing against our house. So my garden experience couldn't have started in a more minimalist way on six little four by four inches of earth. And the greatest influence in my life was not my parents. My father was away in the army, my mother was working. It was an aunt, my Auntie Jean, beloved Auntie Jean, who brought me six pansies, taught me how to plant them and water them and deadhead them, and taught me a technique I still use called puddling in, where you dangle the roots in the hole and pour the water around and it settles around the roots and the plant is happy. So that's where it all began. A little bit later... In the war years, a field was plowed up and we were allowed to apply for a garden plot. And I got one at probably age eight or nine. I have no idea how they decided I was eligible. But I started growing vegetables, rabbits for food and chickens for eggs. This was the beginning. And looking back, it was a very powerful experience, perhaps more powerful because it was during wartime and children in wartime as well as feeling fear and anxiety feel helpless to do anything when the grown-ups are busy working or they're away in the service but one thing I could do was produce food and that gave me so much pleasure and feeling of confidence and I still grow food (laughs) in my garden as much as I can at my age and so That was how it all began.
2: I recall from having interviewed you before that she not only gave you this six pack of pansies, which I think is such a great little, you know, seed of a start to what became a a driving force for you. But she also took you on long walks and started to teach you the names of the plants that you were seeing and the flowers and somehow this sort of orienting yourself to where you were and the non-human lives that were around you seemed important.
1: Oh, yes. This same Auntie Jean would take me on country walks and we would learn the names of wildflowers. I still yearn to see those flowers, which many of which don't exist here. Of course, we're in a different ecosystem. She also taught me which mushrooms were edible and That started me off on foraging. We would collect berries and mushrooms and we would follow the harvesters and pick up grain from the ground, Mm. gleaning to give to our chickens. The chickens got a ration, actually, and so did the rabbits, but we needed more food. So we would pick up grain. And then most importantly, at one point in the war, when ships were being torpedoed. We certainly didn't get any citrus fruit. for It wasn't important compared to some other things. And the government learned that rose hips contained as much vitamin C as oranges. So as children, we rushed around. Of course, children love to earn some money. We could pick rose hips and take them to some depot and get paid by the pound. We were then given bottles of rose hip syrup each child
2: and I think you work on this in your work quite a lot, is this sense of plant blindness in our larger world. And for people who have been taught to see plants as individuals with names and with attributes, we don't necessarily have that same kind of plant blindness, but it is something someone teaches to us or we learn somewhere. That ability to see plants as agents of contribution is sort of what leads to some of your later work or informs some of your later work. Before we get to the garden and therapeutic healing garden aspects of your work, describe your first career, Claire, because it wasn't your first career to be, you know, evidence-based therapeutic landscape consulting in healthcare situations. Your first career was a little different, but also formed a foundation for the second career.
1: Yes, I came to Berkeley as a graduate student in the 60s. That kind of radicalized me quite a bit. And by some sort of fluke, I got hired. You know, back in those days, there was no advertising. A faculty member said, this is a smart person, maybe we should hire her. And I got hired. Anyway, that's how it worked back then. And my field for most of my career my area of passionate interest was the design of affordable housing, public housing, the design of public parks, playgrounds, daycare centers, that kind of thing. I was teaching landscape architects and architects, and it was not until I retired, actually, <laughs> that my whole career took a different turn towards looking at healthcare.
2: One of the things I would like to point out is that that emphasis of you teaching landscape architects and architects about the design of places of public import, such as affordable housing or parks, is that you were helping them to see the psychological impacts of those designs on people's lives. And that that was an important element for them to keep in mind if they were going to design spaces for happy, healthy people. Towards the end of your tenure, you have a wonderful graduate student who comes to you and says, I want to look into this. So describe this articulated joint between career one and career two.
1: I have to just interject there that the questions I was raising at Berkeley were not always very welcomed by some of my colleagues. Mm -hmm. I was raising issues of How do environments affect people psychologically? Many of the designers thought they knew enough, but I thought they did need to look into that. We all did. Yes, the hinge in my career was I was just about to retire. And one of my graduate students, Nani Barnes, came to me and said she saw an ad for a grant to look at the effects of gardens in hospitals. She said, shall we go for the grant? And I said, huh, I don't know anything about hospitals. Never thought about them, never. Why not? Okay, go. We got it. And it was just 10,000, which is peanuts compared to the kind of grants people get, especially scientists. But anyway, we were on our roll. We investigated gardens in four hospitals in the Bay Area, some of which you may know, Kaiser Walnut Creek and Alta Bates being two of them. We interviewed people in the garden to find out what they felt about being there, what was important to them. And we were hooked. I have to say, I was just completely hooked on, as we interviewed people, particularly the staff who interestingly turned out to be the most frequent users. Some of them had tears in their eyes as they told us how important it was after spending time underground in the chemo department or the radiation department to come out and sit in the sun and hear the birds and see squirrels in the trees that if they didn't have this, one put them said, I think I'd go crazy people were emotional, very emotional about the meaning of gardens, especially the staff who were there 24 seven and for whom it meant respite. So that was the beginning. We got a couple of awards for that study. And then we were approached by a publisher and did a book
2: Claire is the author of multiple books in her first career and in the career in which she focuses on evidence-based design in healthcare settings. I will point out for anyone that's looking at the title or the book itself, it is definitely a professional text. It is written for the people who are in the trade trying to design or install or maintain these gardens, not exactly the same as what you might want to use were at home. So you won some awards for this study, not just because you demonstrated that people are moved by gardens. Explain what were some of the findings that hooked you into this field? Maybe it's summarized by saying not all gardens are equal. And this was one of the things you started to find out. Well,
1: Some of it is pretty obvious.
2: And I guess some could look at this and say,
1: why do we need research to prove this? (laughs) Such as nature is stress reducing. We all find that out in our lives. And yet, you see, in the medical world, the healthcare world, they're used to evidence-based, the evidence-based drug studies, right? So they wanted evidence. And it was actually a colleague of mine at Texas A&M, Roger Ulrich, who was a leader in this field who did a study showing medical records of patients, some looking out at a brick wall, some looking out at trees, recovering from surgery, and those looking out at trees, felt less pain, went home sooner, called the nurse less often. And that was the start of this whole field because the medical world said, aha, oh, trees actually are not just cosmetic niceties. They make a difference. People go home sooner it touches the bottom line. That's what, (laughs) unfortunately or fortunately, that's what caught their attention. So yes, it seemed obvious that greenery, nature, et cetera, is stress reducing. But the more we looked into it, there were certainly some gardens which even later were labeled healing gardens because it became a little bit of a fashion to have one in healthcare. Some that were labelled that were that we would go and see, Marnie and I would go on field trips and we would just roll our eyes because it was like mostly hard surface and a few potted plants, maybe they were half dying and they were calling it a healing garden. So it has to be predominantly green. Our rough ratio is 70% green to 30% hardscape, the hardscape being the paths and the seating places and the patios.
2: And one of the riveting things to me when I first started studying your work and we spoke was that there were so many stakeholders that you needed to get input from and that not every kind of garden was appropriate or the most healing or effective for all kinds of patient situations. As you just pointed out, the staff at the hospital were one of those stakeholders who who were really invested in this space, but there was also the bottom line and then families and then visitors and the community around the hospital or whatever the facility might be. And that it was also different in these different kinds of facilities.
1: One of the difficult stakeholders, I don't know if I call him a stakeholder, would be the infection control officer in any hospital. One of the things that we would recommend, and most designers would love to put in a garden, is some kind of water feature, because the sound and sight of moving water is very, very soothing to all of us as human beings. It's probably evolutionary memories that somehow trigger that. In some cases, the infection control officer will absolutely forbid any kind of water feature for fear of what's called Legionnaire's disease or other things. In some, they shrug and say, fine. So it depends. It varies. But to go back to your issue, yes, as time moved on and I looked at more and more gardens in healthcare, it became very clear that we had to think about patient-specific gardens. Our first book had been mostly sort of looking at let's say, acute care hospitals where you could have any kind of patient, any age, any disability. But then we began to realize that gardens for the frail elderly should be different. Gardens for people with Alzheimer's absolutely should be different. Gardens for people with cancer, if you're on chemo, you have to keep out of the sun and bothered by smell. So you better not have the exhaust smell from the cafeteria coming into the garden, which I have found at least one hospital. And you better not have sweet smelling plants, which other people might love, but it might trigger a feeling of nausea in someone on unhemo.
2: So that was the next book and it was with another collaborator, Naomi Sachs. Would you also share with the audience that you retired officially from Berkeley, but you continued in this research quite actively and it became important to you on both very personal as well as professional levels, which incited even more passion and purpose to it. Will you share some about that, Claire?
1: Yes. A strange coincidence happened in my life in that at the same time, Molly and I were doing that very first study, the one where we got the $10,000 grant and we were looking at four Bay Area hospitals, I was diagnosed with cancer. And I ended up being treated at one of the hospitals where we were studying the garden. That was Kaiser Walnut Creek, for those of you in the Bay Area. I thought it was some sort of cosmic joke. But in retrospect, it was the most profound experience to happen to me because I was both a patient and a researcher. As a patient, I experienced how incredibly important that garden was at Kaiser Walnut Creek, which includes two or three enormous valley oak trees, which are protected by law. Otherwise I'm quite sure they would have built over the whole site. And I could go out after chemo and sit under one of those trees and feel like here is this very old tree and I, I'm gonna be okay. And it, it just brought home to me personally, how important a garden is in a hospital, for the patients, for the staff, for the visitors, for everybody.
2: There are facilities where there's some greenwashing going on. Hospitals in this day of privatization have to compete for who wants to come and use them, for rehab, for PT, all of these things. So it is sort of of the moment to say you have a garden, but as you've just outlined, they're not all equal. So. Sometimes having that garden space, you know, if you can't prove that it is positively affecting that bottom line, seems like really easy space to move into for more hospital beds, more office space, more parking. With your research, you have been able to demonstrate that a really good garden, in fact, will increase positively your bottom line. Yeah,
1: it's very difficult to prove. We've done as best we can. We would like to prove, but I think it's impossible. There's anecdotal evidence to suggest that a garden can help staff retention. And staff turnover is a very, very big thing in healthcare as people get burned out. And then it costs a lot to train new staff members. It's very hard to put dollars and cents. But Anecdotally, we certainly had plenty of evidence. I remember a surgeon at Kaiser Walnut Creek who said she'd chosen that hospital because there was a garden, because she could come out there on her breaks and just be in nature. One of the most specific designs regarding a kind of patient is our gardens for people with Alzheimer's disease. Because as you know, people tend to lose spatial cognition so they can be very confused by a garden, which for someone else might be a wonderful place to wander around and get lost in even. So the design must be very simple. There must be a simple circular path coming back to one doorway, one doorway out, one doorway in. People at late stage in the disease tend to put everything in their mouths, So there must be nothing poisonous. And there are many plants that are poisonous that you might not know. Not that people probably would do it, but it's possible. There are a lot of other requirements for that that are important for a designer to know. I've visited some where the designer seemed to know it and some, sadly, that did not fulfill those requirements at all. It must be bounded so people can't see outside. I visited one in Marin where there was just a fence and a man shaking the fence and a staff member saying, what's the matter? What's the matter? I want to go home. My car's out there. He couldn't go home. His car was not there, but he could see some cars. And any good designer would know that you have to bound the garden with planting so people can't see the cars and the road, but they don't feel hemmed in. They don't feel they're imprisoned.
2: You shield the fences. This is a perfect segue because age-proofing our houses is something a lot of people think about. They're told make sure you have the master bedroom on the main floor, make sure it's all one level, that you could move a walker around, all these things. But very few times do they say, "How do you age-proof your your garden?" As we are seeing, even those of us who aren't gardeners, this outdoor space is really important to our well-being. I'd love for you to share with people the layout and how you have designed your garden for your own happiness, and then how you have really thought about how to make sure this garden will hold you safely as you continue to age.
1: Yeah, well, I am aging. (laughs) I'm in my 80s. So a few years ago, I realized hmm, my stepping stone parts to my compost and the greenhouse were not really safe. They were beginning, you know, I could take a fall. I also certainly realized that bending down to my vegetable beds was giving me pain in my back. So I hired a firm of landscape designers and the result was I have now four raised beds, one at about three feet and three at about two feet. I wish I made them all at three feet. I barely have to bend at all. The stepping stones were removed. Concrete sounds pretty harsh, but it looks beautiful. It's tinted. and If you ever do this or recommend this to someone, I recommend you tint the concrete. It doesn't cost that much more. Glare from Regular concrete is very troubling to aging eyes. At my daughter's suggestion, we put in leaf impressions in the concrete just before it dried. We took some big five-pointed fatsia leaves from the garden and fern leaves and put them into the concrete. So now there are these lovely images as you walk. Another thing that I did, which I'm really happy about, the designers wanted to put in steel railings beside the paths and I said, no, no, I don't want to be feeling steel. I had recently been to Japan and seen beautiful gardens in Kyoto. I showed them pictures of bamboo railings. They'd never done it, but they said, well, we'll do it. And they did it. beautiful job. So now I have these lovely bamboo that are lovely to put your hand around and they're lovely to look at. So. That's basically what I've done with my garden.
2: Will you describe for people what your garden consists of at this point, how big it is? And besides the practicalities, maybe describe some of the, the beauties and what you find healing about this space for you now. It's bigger than a standard city
1: lot. The houses on this street go two thirds of the way into the block okay. compared to this parallel street. It's very long and wide. Mm -hmm. Many other houses have cottages in them. This one doesn't. So it's a large space. My husband and I were both gardeners, said this is it. What I love about it is I have room for a greenhouse, which I had erected some years ago because I like to germinate my own seeds, especially the winter vegetable seeds and other things. I like to do cuttings and it's also a storage space. On the opposite side, I have my two compost bins. I love my compost. I love lifting up the carpet and seeing all the little creatures doing their thing, even listening to them. I love the side entrance to my garden, which in the spring is particularly beautiful with bluebells and azalea and many other flowering plants. What else do I love? I have a pond with a little waterfall. And I especially love the trees, all of which were planted by my former husband, now deceased. They're all fruit trees. We have a memory of him. He planted an apple tree and I make apple cake for my family and grandsons. He planted a persimmon tree, which was his favorite fruit. And I'm not crazy about persimmons. I give them away, but I make persimmon bread and he planted a lemon tree and I make lemon marmalade and give that away as Christmas present so there's a lot of memories in the garden from Stephen and now those memories and the food is going to his children now adult and to my grandchildren so that
2: makes me feel very happy that's a beautiful continuum yeah one more question for me how much time do you spend just in the garden, Claire, at this point. and And that could be working, it could be sitting, it could be fussing with your seedlings in the greenhouse. About how much time each day are you out there?
1: I go out there, I mean, several times a day, several times a day. The wonderful thing about gardening, I find, I'm sure you know this, Jennifer, is that you go out to do one thing, like, oh, there's a rose, I better clip the dead rose off, And then you see something else, and then you see something else, and then you thought you'd be out there for five minutes, and you're out there for 35 minutes. And it's all been wonderfully joyful. <laughs> for me, gardening isn't work. It isn't thought. I don't have to think. I, I kind of know what to do. <laughs> and so I go out several times a day because otherwise I am spending a lot of time at a computer. And I'm, I'm writing. I'm writing some more. <laughs> I always like to write. So I make myself, but once I'm out, it's not a matter of making myself, then I potter around.
2: It is one of those activities that transcends thought and yeah, it puts us in a flow state that we know is healthy.
1: The other thing I do almost every day, I have a very ordinary kind of plastic garden chair that sits in the sun. Even in the winter, I move it so it's in the sun. And I go out there and even if it's a cold day, I'm wearing a padded jacket and I sit in the sun and and meditate quietly for just a little while. If it's cold, maybe I don't stay that long, but not only is it quiet and wonderful to be out there surrounded by my plants and the trees, but it's really important for all of us as we age to spend at least 15 minutes a day in the sun, which is helping us absorb vitamin D and healthy bones so that's something else I do I sit in the sun in my garden I also have a deck out of the back between the the door and the garden now at this time of COVID is incredibly important because it's the only place I can see my family who come over from San Francisco maybe every few weeks and we sit separately and can have brunch together outdoors I'm so thankful for that, and I feel so sad for those people who are living in an apartment and don't have any outdoor space they can go to.
2: It puts the focus on public parks, for sure, safe, healthy public parks.
0: You are listening to At Home On Air. We are now switching to questions by participating audience members in this recorded live episode. If you want a chance to ask your question, visit us at at athomewithgrowingolder.org and register for the next live episode.
2: Rachel Friedman has asked, if you feel comfortable, would you share the bird nest story about when you were going through chemo, Claire?
1: Yes. Okay. I will share the bird story. So I was going through chemo and of course your hair comes out. I had breast cancer initially. I had a second cancer later, but I'm better from both. Thank God. So my hair was coming out and I decided to just comb it all out over the compost. It didn't all come out, but a lot did. I must say that's one of the most difficult things when you're going through cancer is to lose your hair. And that was that. Anyway, It eventually grew back. And then one day, I don't know if it was a year later or how much later, my daughter Lucy came running in saying, Mom, Mom, look at this. She found a bird's nest that was in a whole overgrown area of brambles at the bottom of the garden. There are parts of the garden I just can't cope with anymore. So it was overgrown, which is good for the birds. She brought this bird's nest and it was lined with hair. And I looked at it and I said, oh, my God, that's my hair. It was my hair. I could recognize it. So it made me just so happy and, you know, it made me cry, (laughs) cry almost to think of it. But it made me so happy that my loss of hair created a nest for new life in a bird's nest.
2: Thank you, Rachel, very much for asking to share that lovely story. This is also actually from Rachel. In your studies, did you notice that one's age is associated with how emotionally attached people are to their gardens? It seems to me people discover nature as a source of healing, particularly in older years. Do you think age has an impact on this phenomenon?
1: Maybe because as we age, we're less mobile. (laughs) especially now, we're less mobile, we can't go to many places. You know, honestly, I have to say, I don't know. I really think it might depend on whether you were introduced to gardens and gardening as a child. I mean, I was. I wonder if people who were not introduced to gardening by anyone significant in their life
2: how and when do they start being interested in gardening? From Makiko, she would love to hear more about affordable housing outdoor spaces and any thoughts you have on those. That's a long
1: way back in my work. I was particularly interested in the site planning, not the interior design so much, how the buildings are arranged on the site and what is between the buildings. The space between is absolutely critical and is so often in affordable housing was just left like, huh? oh, well, that doesn't matter. Well, that is where the children are and that is where children should be allowed. So it's very significant that people be allowed to have some private open space, whether it's a patio or a balcony, however small that they can have a garden, there's a garden again, and that that opens out onto some sort of shared space where people can meet, but in particular where children can be because the outdoor shared space in affordable or public housing or middle-income housing is 90% used by children. The adults, not so much. They're at home, they're busy, they're watching television or they're working from home. The children are the ones that go out there, so it better be designed for children's use, which does not mean just a playground. Yes, a playground is nice with swings and slides, but bicycle paths and lawns and places to run and to bounce your ball and to pull a wagon and all those things that children do.
2: A rat is wondering what you would site as the fundamental or most important elements of a healing garden and of course it's circumstantial to different needs but are there are there a baseline set of foundational elements claire well i think
1: i said earlier that it'd be predominantly green that there be a variety of color shades of green. I mean, a good landscape designer will know this, but doesn't always happen. So there can be subtleties of green. I would say some plants that move in the breeze. There are wonderful plants, I notice them now as I walk and take pictures of them, that move in the slightest breeze. That can be mesmerizing for someone elderly or someone whose limbs are not working, who's sitting in one place in the garden. So every detail, you must think about someone who is so frail, maybe they can only walk to the first bench. There should be all kinds of interesting plant materials around them to engage them and not just a flat piece of lawn. What else can I say? Moving water. There'd, There'd be changes throughout the seasons. I mean, we sort of have seasons here. That was brought home to me when Marnie and I were first giving talks after that first book was published. And two women came up to us after a conference talk and said, well, all of that's very nice. Your pictures are very nice, but we live in Saskatchewan. Hospital gardens are under snow for six months a year. What can we do? And we went, (laughs) whoops. I guess we were only taking pictures in California. Subsequently, I went all the way across Canada to taking pictures there. Anyway, there are some wonderful indoor gardens in Canada, probably in Scandinavia, maybe in Russia, who knows. But there are indoor gardens which are full of tropical plants, which again, there is the greenery even in wintertime.
2: You mentioned going outside to sit in the sun that you need a little bit of both. You need some place that's in the sun, but some place that's sheltered as well so that you don't have to sit in the sun.
1: Thank you, Jennifer. So a matter of choice. This is very critical. People need choice, choice of where to walk, choice of where to stop, choice of what to look at, choice of where to sit in the sun, in the shade, whether it's morning, whether it's afternoon. When you think about it, when you enter a hospital as a patient, many choices are taken away from you. You can't choose what you wear. You wear one of those terrible hospital gowns. You hardly have a choice in what you eat or when you eat or when they take a blood drawer or when someone comes in to see you. So the more you can give people choice in the garden, in a subtle way, you are letting people have greater sense of control in their life where they don't have it if they're a patient in the hospital.
2: Another question from... R.E. Marcus. How important is it that patients interact with the garden? So touching the plants, actually doing garden activities, or is simply being in the garden or just being able to see it through a window, is that sufficient? What would your recommendation to a facility be?
1: Looking out of a garden can be very important, as Roger Ulrich found in his original study, that people out of the garden got better sooner than looking at a brick wall. Being in the garden, maybe for someone who's frail, elderly, and can only walk to one bench and sit, moving and walking around in the garden, very important. There's some gardens in the UK that are being created for people with spinal injuries, which have all sorts of requirements for people learning to walk again. Touching things, yes. Bending down or not bending to smell things. Plants where you rub the leaves. I go on a walk every day and touch the leaves of a scented geranium in someone's front yard because I love the smell. Even things to taste. I've seen a garden in Portland, Oregon. It was a garden for burn patients and they want them to stretch when they're in the garden. So they put planters with tomatoes and strawberries and blueberries fairly high up so people have to reach for them and they like to do that. There is a whole field I just want to mention called horticultural therapy and this is people who are trained to use gardening as a medium of healing with geriatric patients, with people with Alzheimer's, with people recovering from various illnesses. It's also used in prisons or with at-risk juveniles. So that's a whole other field of using gardening that is very important.
2: Suzanne mentions, wouldn't it be great if hospitals were known for their beautiful gardens? And some are, and it would be great if there were more. I would love for you to share with the audience, Claire, some of your recommendations for how we help advocate for that. And maybe at the same time, we are actually advocating for either ourselves in nursing home facilities or assisted living facilities or hospitals, or we're advocating for someone we love in our life that is looking at a space like this so that we voice these values and priorities to these facilities that we are going to spend a lot of time and money in.
1: I do recommend if you yourself or a family member is looking at assisted living facilities, choosing between them, that you think about, access to the garden that there is a garden that there is easy access when i say easy access you look at the details i've been to one place in illinois where it was very difficult for people to get out because there was a lip at the entrance and for someone with a wheelchair they couldn't get over the lip i mean basic basic stuff but it happens What other kinds of questions would
2: you recommend people ask? Especially if
1: you're looking at something for a loved one who's going into a memory care unit. There is access to a garden and the garden is designed for that particular group. In that case, you might want to look at The second of the books that Jennifer mentioned, Therapeutic Landscapes, which has a chapter on Alzheimer's Gardens with a lot of details. There are a lot of details. And if they're not done right, the staff will keep the door locked because they've had too many instances where someone's shaking the fence or... Something has happened and they said, oh, no, we can't let the patients go out there. It's too difficult. So they keep it locked and there's a whole
2: resource not available. Well, and I would imagine that based on what you mentioned earlier, that... A good garden is a great resource for the staff. So, if the facility has a good garden, you probably have a happier staff as well. So, that's a good recommendation for the facility. Claire has multiple books about the power of landscape and space. One of them is a beautiful memoir. And, Claire, maybe talk about the process by which you wrote this. It's not specifically gardening, but it's related. It's like a cousin to that same therapeutic input. So this is called
1: Iona Dreaming, The Healing Power of Place, a memoir. And how this came about is that in recovering from cancer, I did work with a therapist in Berkeley who taught me healing imagery. And the imagery for me revolved around an island in Scotland, where I had been, Iona in the Hebrides. And later I went to live there alone for a year I mean, there are people on the island, but I was living alone and writing. And this book was the result. It's about a healing landscape of animals and seabirds and sheep and waves and clouds and everything there is on this island that was healing to me. And it's also a memoir of remembrances about other different periods of my life, including that childhood experience that I already told you about at the beginning.
2: As we are drawing very quickly to a close, Claire, your grandson, Remy, would like to show you a garden he's just made out of Legos.
0: Yes, there are trees and there's a waterfall. There's a bench down at the left corner right right here and somebody picking berries because I heard you for the people that got burned.
1: Oh, really good. That's lovely. I am so happy to see that. Lego garden. I didn't know you could make gardens out of Lego.
2: Thank you, Remy. Oh, that's great. (laughs) Is there anything else you would like to share with people before we go about how important your garden has been to you, Claire, during the pandemic? Well, it's a safe place. It's a
1: refuge. I would be there anyway, you know, but there aren't many places one can go. I walk in the neighborhood with a mask and occasionally I go to a park on the Bay, Point Isabel. I think it's very important to me, as I said earlier, because my family can visit here. We don't want to visit inside the building, my house or their house, but they can all come here and they're a group and they can sit together and I sit separately. We're all there and can hear each other and see each other and talk and be a family. And I I feel very privileged because I know a lot of people's adult children and grandchildren are somewhere very far away. And so they have to make a decision whether they're going to visit them at Thanksgiving or not, or only see them on Zoom. I do feel very lucky that way, that they're close by.
2: Well, thank you very much for sharing with us tonight. And I would say that, you know, in a culture that has maybe long undervalued gardens that aren't fit for magazine pages, this year has certainly taught us that, gardens are a privilege and luxurious and necessities. And your work is making them ever more effective spaces in therapeutic facilities and in our world at large, raising this value up for us all. And so I thank you for your long career advocating for them, Claire. Thank you, Jennifer.
0: This episode of At Home On Air was produced by the At Home with Growing Older team. We could not host these conversations without the generosity of our marvelous and passionate guests and hosts. Thank you for sharing your personal and professional insights. Thank you to our live audience for your thoughtful contributions. To subscribe to this podcast and for more information, visit us at at homewithgrowingolder.org. Thank you to our sponsors, Rhoda Goldman Plaza, the jewel of San Francisco's assisted living and memory care communities, and the Walnut Foundation, a San Francisco family foundation. We would also like to thank, for their encouragement and inspiration, Encore.org, which works to bridge the intergenerational divide and the Op-Ed Project, whose mission is to change who writes history. At Home with Growing Older strives to educate, inspire, and connect people across generations and disciplines to re-envision and improve the experiences of later life. Don't forget to subscribe and tune in for the next episode.